Welcome to the In His Image podcast, a series from Christian Concern with me, Paul Huxley, and Ben John. We'll be looking at questions raised by the book In His Image by Stephen McCoyd and seeing from the Bible how God's design for humanity is good news for individuals and society. So today we're doing our first session looking at Romans 1. We're going to be focusing on verse 20, but we'll read from verse 18 to 25. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. So our questions today are, does objective morality exist? Or to put it another way, is there only one way that people ought to live, no matter who they are, or where they come from. And the second question, how might you use these verses to argue for Christian morality? If you want to pause and think about that for yourselves, now's your chance. So Ben, does objective morality exist? Well, I think in these passages here, if we look at verse 20, it talks about God's eternal power and divine nature being clearly seen. I think this is really referring to Um, ethics and morality being based in the character and nature of God and therefore they are unchanging. And so the right way to live in terms of good and evil, right and wrong, applies to all, whatever time or place or culture that we're in. So whilst people might talk about, um, you know, oh, we we know things now, we're on the right side of history, um, and in some ways, we are. Con- we, there might be ways in which we're conforming closer to God's law. What is ultimately the transcendent standard is God and his ways, his nature and who he is. What is wrong today, truly, what is truly wrong today has always been truly wrong. What is truly right and good today has always been truly good. And if you go back to verse 18, it clearly says that humans, people, And when Paul writes this, he has non-Jews in mind. So all people suppress the truth by their wickedness. Um, And it goes on to say that God, what may be known about God, is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. So it's not just that God is this constant standard for all people at all times in all places. It's also that deep down, we know this. We know what God is like. We know his invisible qualities and we suppress it. So we choose to push down that truth about God and 
from that, we take part in wickedness. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's Dan Strange who talks about um, the cosmic game of hide and seek and God isn't hiding despite what the world likes to say and that suppressing the truth is a bit like when you are in a pool and you have a a, a, a ball and you, you know, one of those inflated ball, balls and you try and push it down into the water, what you find is it always springs back up again. And that's really a, a good picture of what is happening there in verse 18. And we're not saying that everyone knows that they're doing this, of course. Um, whereas in the pool instant, you probably know that you're pushing the ball down. But we have been pushing down the truth about God so long that we, we forget it's even there. So, you know, we're not saying that someone like Richard Dawkins, just as a, an example atheist, um, is aware that he is suppressing the truth about God. But nevertheless, that is what he's deep down doing. And that truth keeps on popping up, even though he doesn't realize it. it. I think that's what we're saying. And if that's what we're saying, and if that's true about the character of God and the existence of God, then it follows that we see his moral character and we are to behave in, a, in an appropriate way. We are to recognize that we're humans, that we're not God, and yet we are, like going back to our first episode, we're made in his image. So we're made like God, to be like God. Yeah, well, God, in a sense, is the answer to the question that we're looking at today. We all know that objective morality exists in terms of good and evil, right and wrong. We all know, you know, we, we can look at things. We all know um, the Holocaust are wrong. We all know rape is wrong. Uh, we all know murder is wrong. You know, all these different things. Um, we know, and that's because objective morality exists. And of course, there are times in histories where cultures deny that. And if we deny objective morality, then it means we cannot. It's, it's a form of moral relativism and pluralism which is basically saying we cannot pass judgment on anything anywhere. Um, yes, you know, as a society now we have laws, but who are we to judge cultures apart from us? Who are we to judge cultures throughout history? Who are we to judge cultures um, uh, in other, other cultures? You know, who, who are we to make those kinds of decisions? And it's because there is objective morality that we can, and because, and this is all because of God, because God exists, it's in his nature. That he himself is the answer to that um, is it youth, euthypro um, dilemma, uh, which is saying, oh, are, are things right and wrong because God declares them right and wrong? Or is it because they are transcendently right and wrong and so therefore God submits to a, to a higher standard? And the reality is, is what is right and wrong and what is good and good, uh, good and, and, or evil? It comes from God's very own nature and being and character. If we want to say that something is objectively wrong, like the things you mentioned, murder and rape, then we need to have a meaning to our existence. It implies that there is a meaning to existence. It implies that there is a God who is just and who will judge people beyond this life and who will enforce that morality. And so if we want to say that someone who has escaped justice through their whole life and been found out to be doing wrong things, if we want to see justice, 
for someone who has escaped justice in this life, and we know that they've done many bad and evil things, if we want to see um, justice in that case, then we need God. And we need a God who will, who will judge those people completely fairly. And so I'm reminded of Psalm 73, where the psalmist is disappointed and frustrated that the evil people he knows are doing well in this life. And then as he goes through the psalm, he recognizes that their feet are set in slippery places. They're going to have a fall. And that can only happen because he sees what their end is. And he sees that there is a God who is going to judge one day and he will judge completely righteously. Yep, certainly. We need to realize that there are two ways to live, the way of the Lord or, or a way of rebellion. And we, that's sort of signaled in Romans 1. It talks about we either worship the creator or we worship the creation. When we worship the creator, we're conformed more and more into the image of God, into the image of Christ, um, and grow. We're transformed by the renewing of our minds. Uh, we, we can walk in his ways. And we, as you said, all of us, each and every one of us, are under judgment. Uh, but when we turn to Christ, when we receive his grace, and we united to him and his righteousness then that empowers us to walk in the ways that he has uh, for us and we see that throughout the psalms you've just spoken about psalm 73 but throughout the psalms there's this common theme of god's law being something good and i think a lot of us today seem to think oh you know the, the law is just the old testament we're not under the law anymore um but in fact the law is um what we are called to live by. I think it was, was it J.I. Packer who said, um, sanctification is spirit-empowered law-keeping. And, you know, we see that in Psalm 119. We see that in Psalm 1. It says there's, you know, the two ways for us to go, the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish, just as you were saying, Paul. And we need to be willing to say that today. And law there isn't necessarily the law of Moses or a particular code of law in the Old Testament, but it is that which reflects God's true nature back in Romans 1, that which is consistent with his invisible qualities. So we're not saying here that all of the Old Testament laws should be followed precisely as they were at that time right now in 21st century Britain. What we are saying is that those laws reflected a good God who made them for at that particular time. And we need to seek to apply that same wisdom to our situations. I would agree with you there, Paul. And yeah, it's good to clarify those kinds of things. But I think, yeah, in society in general, the idea of talking about law keeping um, in the church today, I think is, is sometimes marginalized or scorned, when in fact it's really just about obedience to Christ. And we're called to call all people to that obedience. And that standard, that morality, that wisdom in, in, in Christ, in God, that nature applies to each and every one of us because each and every one of us are under the judgment. So Ben, how might you use this verse to argue for Christian morality? Well, as we've said earlier, morality is part of God's divine nature. And that's for all of us, for all people, in all places, in all times, in all cultures. Wherever they are, we need to argue for that. And the question we need to think about, is, as you said, is Christian morality. And 
this maybe comes back to some of what it means to be made in the image of God. It ties back into who he is. And we know that God being triune is personal and relational. And so it's, it's inherent in the Christian faith that it's necessary that we have a personal relational God who speaks to his creation, who is intimately involved with it, yet distinct, that the foundations are there for morality to be in place, for us to even know, for us to hear God, because we know that God speaks. He speaks in nature. He speaks through his word. And so we as Christians need to be bold in pointing to the uniqueness of Christ, that God revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. He literally tabernacled with us. And so the foundations that we have in Christianity are necessary for what we need for objective morality. So if we believe in a God who is known to everyone in some respect, and we know as Christians that that God is Jesus-shaped, he's like Jesus, Jesus reveals that God to us. And we know from what Jesus says that God's word is reliable and it's wise and it's good for us. Why wouldn't we want Christian morality for everyone? It's a blessing. Exactly, and true human flourishing is when we live according to God's ways. Um, that's what it is to be Christ-like. Uh, but we're seeing more and more in the culture various ways in which we're moving away from God's norms, God's laws, God's standard, God's nature, God's morality, and pursuing our own ways. We're not pursuing the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked. And we will be talking about some of that on the next episode of the In His Image podcast.